0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, two debut books, Harry Parker's novel, Anatomy of a Soldier... And then you could do something amazing with your life. You are Rao Moat by Andrew Hankinson. Harry Parker grew up in Wiltshire. He was educated at Falmouth College of Art and University College London. He joined the British Army when he was 23 and served in Iraq in 2007 and Afghanistan in 2009 as a captain. He's now a writer and artist and lives in London. And Harry's first novel is Anatomy of a Soldier, which we're going to be talking about today. Harry, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for asking. Describe Anatomy of a Soldier to me. What's it about?
2: It's a story about a soldier called Tom Barnes who deploys to an unnamed conflict when he's about 23, 24 years old and he's in command of a platoon of soldiers. But the book opens with him being injured and he steps on a bomb and unless something or someone intervenes, he'll bleed and and die. Um, So the tourniquet that all the soldiers keep in their thigh pocket is taken out by one of the other soldiers who runs up and attaches it to his leg and it's tightened and it stops him dying And the story sort of unfolds from there. And each chapter is narrated by an object. So that first chapter is narrated by that tourniquet that Mm -hmm. saves his life. And the next chapter is then the bag of fertiliser, which is sold at market, and then travels through the landscape and gets made into the bomb that blew him up. And so there's the chapter that tells that. And... The story goes on like that with um, different objects describing different things. For instance, Tom's mother's handbag describes the moment when he comes into hospital for the first time and she sees him or the bone saw that is used to amputate Tom's second leg. And then the, the story sort of unfolds and it tells the story of both the soldiers but also the insurgents in that unnamed country and how they interlink and their stories cross over and how... The bomb that wounds him, how that is sort of integral to the story and ties them all together.
1: And it sort of skips backwards and forwards in time as well so as you said it starts with Tom first of all just immediately after after the injury um, then goes backwards and forwards throughout his rehabilitation, also goes backwards and forwards of the lives of, of the two boys and that sort of means i guess each chapter apart from i think obviously like there's there's a few like the last chapter very much sort of a cathartic finish to it but really you could just shuffle it around and read them in any order
2: yeah when i started writing it it was something i thought about could you write a book that you could throw all the chapters in the air and and read in any order i suppose it was because the central theme is about this explosion and, and recovery and warfare and I wanted to sort of have a way of disorientating the reader because that's the experience of conflict that I had. But also it's the experience of recovering in hospital. You know, you're high on all sorts of drugs and you're you're trying to get better, but you don't quite know when you'll next be safe or where you are you know whether mentally or physically so that that was why i did that really yeah
1: and that could be the same about the the sort of central device of of narrating it from the perspective of of an object i mean sometimes it's quite clear what that object is and you'll say sometimes you're reading a third of the chapter trying to guess what the next one is going to be so let's talk about that devise. Where did that come from?
2: So I was injured in in Afghanistan, and and afterwards I I've always painted and, and drawn, but afterwards I. I started to write more and more and I just hated writing about my own story really there was I found it I was quite squeamish about it in a way you know to saying I was in the Helmand Valley or whatever and I started to write stuff from different points of view I suppose to try and give a distance from myself I wasn't interested in the politics really and I you know there's there's great non-fiction books out there and, and memoirs that go into that the rights and wrongs and what it felt like to be in the context of the sort of strategy but also you know it was there was the kit you know what was the kit like did we have crap kit Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to step around that and that's why you know know, I've tried to write something from the point of view of animals which was really knickers and so I suppose it was a logical conclusion and I went on a short Arvon writing course which was a week long thing and I was talking to one of the tutors and and we were Talking about you know, and I sort of said, "Well, could you do it from an animal point of view?" And he said, "Well, just give it a go, see what happens." So I wrote the first chapter, the Tornikeers, as, mm-hmm. as a sort of standalone short story, and then from there, I realised that actually it was quite interesting for lots of reasons but um i built the story on on that i suppose so that was the reason i chose the inanimate object or how it came about
1: how did you choose what object was going to be for each chapter but sometimes it's obvious sometimes less so and i think there are sometimes when you know there's a chapter that's that's told from the from the perspective of the drone that's going to bomb the, the building that some people are hiding in and that certainly you can you know that gives that Whole story, like a sort of an added poignancy, but sometimes it seems just almost more random. I mean, there's also, there's another great one which I think was like was sort of really moving, which is um, like from the position of a, a snowflake. Yeah. But again, it's like a it's a random it's a random object. So, how did you come up with what what it was
2: going to be? I mean, they're not meant to be that random. The the interesting thing about objects, for me, especially having been a soldier, is that when you go to war, you have kit that you put in some bags, and you can carry it all yourself. And then you get on a bus, and you get on a plane, and 20 hours later, you're sitting in a desert. And the more, you, when you're out there, you sort of survive with this equipment. So your body armour and your rifle, and these are the things that protect you, but they're also the things that let you get close to the enemy. And, you know, as you patrol, your body armour starts to smell of your own sweat and your helmet starts to fit better and starts to get sort of dented and scuffed and you, you start to sort of, they get in sort of imbued with ritual and meaning and so from that point of view, it's very easy to pick an item. So, for instance, you know, the, they may feel random, but the, the handbag of the mother is this very personal thing for for the woman mm-hmm. in the story, and it's narrating something which is a very personal moment. There's another chapter where the object is an Afghan rug or a Persian rug, and they sit on it, some of the characters, Tom Barnes and, and some of the some of the other characters and they're discussing culture and it was just really interesting that you could describe the way a Persian rug is knotted together yeah. and then you could have a chapter that describes um, so there's something this is culture and it's, there's another chapter where Tom Bound sits down with a her, with her mate to have a pint and the object that describes it is a pint and there's something about friendship there and stuff so it was random but it was also mm-hmm. it came quite naturally
1: yeah, well absolutely. I think the the one you just mentioned the rug there because you do tell you tell the history of the rug you say that oh, this is where I came from this is how I was made how I got to this place as well so that sort of feeds in nicely as you said to the to the discussion that's being had mm-hmm. on that rug at the time you mentioned right at the beginning that it's it's an unnamed war, and you don't you don't you know you don't. Although it's, it's it doesn't take long to sort of work out where it is and what's going on. I've already mentioned the it's obviously a technological modern war. There's the night vision goggles, and but what was the what was the idea behind just not locating it in place as such?
2: Well, because I, one of the reasons was I had I did a tour of Iraq as well, and I mm-hmm. used as much of my experiences there as I did in Afghanistan. But I think sort of geographically and the feel of it it's much more like afghanistan the real reason was because it goes back to sort of sidestepping the politics it was something with the objects not sort of knowing where they were as well they they can't know that in a sense Mm -hmm. but the characters could obviously speak you know could talk about their location i just wanted to give some space around the story so that it could stand alone for the reader and for me as a writer, actually. And I think that was a way of doing it for me. It was one of the rules I set myself very early. It was like, I cannot say Afghanistan, I cannot say Taliban. In order to make it much more just about my views and conflict and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Yeah,
1: let's go on to the characters. So Tell t- us about Tom. Who's, who's Tom?
2: He's a platoon commander, sort of a, to the mid-twenties, captain. And he... Yeah, he's he's just a he's just a pretty standard soldier who's not particularly brave but is not a coward. I I'd, I'd say he's quite thoughtful actually mm-hmm. in terms of where he is and what he's doing. And he's he you know there's this thing where so you know the people say that soldiers never think it's going to happen to them. You know they never think they're the ones that's going to be injured and Tom has a slightly more sort of interesting view on it and he's not always that confident in mm-hmm. those times when he he is slightly worried. He comes from a pretty solid family. He's lucky like that. And uh, so when he's injured, because he, his recovery is as much a part of the book as his time in the unnamed country. And how he overcomes and how the injuries affect him. He's pretty um, straightforward with himself, I think, and with how he comes to terms with it. I think he you know, he recovers pretty quickly. And that's mainly because mainly he's, he's lucky and he's given all the support, but he also mm-hmm. has a sort of tight family around him. Let's talk about the two boys, so Latif and Faridun. So they're two, they're two friends, and one of the objects, which is a bicycle, is it tells the story of their sort of friendship as they. As they grow up so they're sort of flying kites and getting to know each other and then as it's quite hard to describe quickly because the the book moves around in time and space but essentially as the foreign soldiers come into their country they they basically get estranged from each other because they have different slightly different motivations they come <laughs> from different families Faridin's father who's another ca- sort of central character in the book who's one of the sort of elders of of the village that it's set around, Keith Faridin within what would be described as a more sort of constant political framework. But Latif joins the sort of foreign fighters who have come to the come to the country. And I was very interested in those different motivations and how they get sort of pulled apart.
1: And then you've got, as you said, Kushan Han, who yeah. is Faridun's father, and then this guy Akhtar, who is, I mean, I guess a father figure becomes for, for Latif. We never hear we, hear, we do hear of Latif's mother, but I don't think we ever hear of his father in the book. So, well, let's talk about Akhtar.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, he, you know, it was really interesting because um, when I was in these conflicts, you know, war is such a dehumanising activity, but i think in these sorts of counterinsurgencies that we have been involved in so british army you're always trying to understand the local population and the enemy so when one of your mates is killed or something like that there's you know it's, it is very easy to dehumanize the enemy in order that you can go and you know you can fight them but because you're so interested in who they are and why they're there and that you're mm-hmm. not opposed to them in a sort of traditional sense of the word in terms of warfare I think when I after I was injured, I, I was very interested in, in m- the motivations of the enemy or the insurgents. And I'd always think, you know, if, if there were foreign soldiers rumbling down the streets outside in London, what, you know, what would what would I be doing? Mm-hmm. I'd probably be planting bombs just like they did. So I think very quickly, as soon as I started to write those characters, they were rehumanized in a way. So Akhtar, who's meant to be this, you know, I suppose he's the baddie, but also as soon as you you know you're looking, I you know gave him. a a bit of backstory and and showed his history you know it's not that straightforward you know he had he he has other motivations that mean you know that he that's the reasons that he's fighting
1: there's a a part in the book where you mentioned where the um tom and the friend go for a pine and the book is narrated from from the perspective of, of a pint glass and his friend says you know says something like the guys that did this to you walked in now, I'd give them a good talking to or something. And Tom says, Fill, fill them in, I think. Yeah. So. And, uh, and Tom says,
2: You know, well, I would buy them a pint. Mm. I think he says, Buy them a drink. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah I probably thinking, not a pint. Yeah. That probably wouldn't work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think very quickly after I was injured, I think if you join the army, you've got to expect, if, you, if you're if going to go into that sort of line of business, you've got to expect that you might get injured or, or worse. And so. I, I didn't feel any anger about it. It was often other people, my mates or people I served with, who were sort of angry for me. And I suppose that chapter is just a way... And I think that's, you know, Tom Barnes, the character of the book, gets there slightly differently than, than I did. But, you know, it was a way of illustrating that that he's not really bitter about it, I don't think. Because he he's not framing the individuals on the other side as evil. It's just the situation, it's mm-hmm. conflict, which is the really rubbish thing.
1: listen to Little Atoms I'm Neil Denny today I'm talking to Harry Parker and we're talking about his novel Anatomy of a Soldier and I want to talk about how you got into the army you went to you went to art school for heaven's sake how did you end up in the army
2: yeah so I I, when I was 18 I went to I did a foundation course down in Falmouth and then I was going to try and do I wanted to do fine art um as a degree but I um I, I just somehow I thought sort of standing in a it felt to me like art school was standing in a warehouse painting and no one really teach you anything so I went and did history of art so it was a bit more sort of written work and then I worked in advertising for about two minutes if that I mean it was like a sort of internship and I just didn't I didn't really get on with it because I thought it would be something that was visual and I sort of I mean this is wrong it's not like that but at the time slightly naive I thought it was sort of almost like it was sort of lying to people mm-hmm. um and and my i've got a quite a military family when i left the army a few years ago it was the first time there was not a member of my family in the military for over 100 years so there's you know there's this long tradition mm-hmm. but i never really you know it was always an option but i hadn't sort of said, right i'm definitely gonna do it and then you know the money's not bad and uh, you know i the uh, idea of being an officer or something really appealed i think and a bit of it was about excitement, but but most of it was about sort of a job that I thought would be really worthwhile, sort of learning how to lead British soldiers. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the early years because you joined at twenty three. So joined at twenty three, and I was sort of joined at twenty two in Iraq at twenty three. Oh, okay. Uh, I did a seven month tour there in two thousand and seven, and then I was in Afghanistan in two thousand and nine, and then I had a, a period of rehabilitation before leaving the army. I suppose. Four, three four years ago yeah
1: okay well i wanted to talk about the the early years but there wasn't really any early years before so you you're off to uh, iraq like pretty much like not that long after
2: yeah i finished training and two weeks later i was in basra in southern iraq and is that
1: as a captain so as lieutenant yeah so, okay yeah, so.
2: and then sort of promoted but yeah it's so it was very quick deployment yeah I mean, it happened to quite a few sort of us at the time because the army was quite busy but it, what, that is the that is an exception to be sent out quite so soon. And I was commanding a platoon of thirty odd soldiers in in Basra. Yeah.
1: So give us a sort of feel of what that's like to be uh, the commander of men in combat, basically under those sort of circumstances.
2: It's such a hard thing to describe. I, I mean, the, the thing about the training, the officer training in the British Army is it's quite it's like it's over a year. So you're not thrown into it, and that is probably the longest leadership training out there, I should think. It really sets you know you, you really do get a training in order to be able to lead you get to Iraq and there's these 30 hardened warriors and you look at them and they look at you and think god who have, we, who, have we, who have we who have we got now and so those first few weeks um are very interesting and and you know you're you're the new one you know, you're know mm-hmm. you the newbie and they, they've been around some of them are sort of 10 years older than you and been around the block a few times but pretty quickly you find your your place and you learn a lot off them very quickly but it it's really interesting. I think they want you to. You're the team is formed in a certain way, and you yeah. are the one. You're the buck stops with you as a young officer, and you do have to make the decisions. But often you're, you know, you're asking advice and things from them. And if you're lucky, you get a good platoon who can the sort of team gels and it works quite well.
1: And what's it like when you're first there in the country? You know, how do you adjust?
2: Well, I suppose the heat. For, the heat hits you being. From, you know, where <laughs> um, that that sort of just unbelievable heat, especially in Basra, where there's a lot of waterways, so it can be very um, humid. And you know, some days it was up to 55 degrees. But after a couple of months, you do you do realise you're drinking you're drinking less water, and you you do acclimatise. The other thing is you're in these armoured vehicles we were in, in Iraq, and you're wearing all this equipment, so it's just sort of you all that stuff in in the heat. The other thing about it is. I think Basra is a 2 million people population and we were sort 600 in this in Basra Palace which was a large complex by the river which Saddam Hussein had built as his sort of summer house and summer house is not the right word yeah. these buildings were huge um, and I think each one was for a different one of his sons I mean I don't think he ever used it but there's, there's this massive area and it. it had been looted and you know it was mortared every day. Um, but you you would get in your armored vehicles with your thirty guys and you'd go out into the city of, of two million people and try not to bash too many cars and stuff in your armored vehicles and rumble around rumble around the city and that was that's quite a weird experience because you can feel very isolated and it can feel very sort of lethal in a way because you know on any road corner there could be a bomb dug in or you're trying to trust the population and Mm -hmm. ask them questions and get information and sort of reassure them but at the same time there's a high chance they don't really want you here and they're gonna go around the corner and tell the, the insurgents that you're there
1: what were the sort of essential differences in afghanistan in terms of adjusting to being in the place
2: so it was where i was in basra was urban so so you're always on streets and there's higher you're sort of overlooked by things which I found was quite sort of oppressive you're always looking for firing points and things high up the other big difference was the fact in Afghanistan often you're carrying all your kit on you so physically it's different it wasn't quite as hot because Afghanistan's higher up; it's about two thousand meters. But um, it, don't, you know, it still gets really hot. But you're you're fighting a sort of rural warfare, and it's more sort of farmland and small villages. There is much more. You, you were in contact with the enemy, and in contact means you know, in, in fighting them much more often than Afghanistan.
1: And as happens in the book, you know, Tom is um, he he goes, and we've mentioned him going and visiting the elders and sitting on the Afghan rug, and that's obviously as an officer, a part of your job is almost that sort of diplomacy of talking to the locals so in terms of some of the things that happened in the book what what were your sort of experiences of, of dealing with the locals?
2: I mean often you're just on patrol and, and you, you're just trying to grab a conversation with anyone you can because mm-hmm. you can't it's very difficult to set up a meeting you can't tell, you can't say to someone like we're going to pop around at 10 o'clock cause, because you just can't set those sorts of patterns you can't let people know where you're going to be so a lot of the time it was just knocking on people's doors and you know, and you have to be very careful. You know, it's very careful not to sort of intrude on people's lives because if you're playing a very difficult balancing act where you want to be reassuring the, the population, but they they don't really want you there. Or, mm-hmm. You know, it's, they'd rather the, the other. You know, the government of Afghanistan was was the Taliban. So, so there were similar situations. I think Tom's is a sort of condensed version of the sorts of things that that were more that sort of happened on a routine basis
1: being under fire as you said in Afghanistan you're much more in contact with the enemy I mean, more, again, from the perspective of of knowing that you're also in charge of a platoon of people, you're ultimately responsible for the lives of other people as well as your own. What's it feel like?
2: Um, What's it like? It's really frightening at the the first... I mean, it's very frightening at the start, but you kick in very quickly. And actually, the older and wiser you get, the less frightening it is, and the more training you've had, the less frightening it is, because you've spent years on Salisbury Plain or in the Brecon Beacons when it's cold and wet, firing Mm -hmm. blanks. But you do it day in, day out. And it just means that when you get shot at, you hit the deck and you fire two rounds back. And as soon as that happens, your adrenaline's up and you're trying to make sense of the situation. And as an officer, it's slightly different because you're trying to coordinate things and give a picture. The only thing that I add is that in a lot of films, you get a, you get a camera height view of warfare. And in warfare, your view is about six inches off the ground often. <laughs> so it's the disorientation is is probably more than one would expect and knowing where the enemy is i mean you know i did i was when my personal experiences i didn't end i wasn't in afghanistan for that long really before i was injured but in both of the conflicts i was at where and who the enemy are or which bush to fire at you know it's very disorientating and in my experiences and other people have very different experiences but my personal experience is that I, you know i was never confronted with a Well, only a few times, but never confronted with an enemy who was sort of right there and I could see him through his eyes. It's often much more confusing than that. And you spend half your time working out where the enemy is and making sure you're not shooting your own side than you do in some sort of something that looks like a a war film. What can you actually remember now of the moment when you were injured? So, in terms of how autobiographical the book is, Mm -hmm. I I placed what happened to me on Tom for lots of reasons, but he has very similar injuries to me and. And actually, the, the sort of autobiographical bits are, are those bits where he's, where he's blown up. Because I really sort of mind my own experiences. And, you know, I can remember those. You know, it felt like a long time to me, but those minutes of being blown up and, and what it was like. And, you know, it's all in, the, in those bits of, mm-hmm. of really sort of... I tried to pull them out of myself because they
3: felt quite powerful for the book.
1: From the distance of being, you know, way into the future, sitting down to write that book and sort of having to remember... The sort of immediacy of it? Can you, you remember like that moment?
2: Yeah, I can. I, I mean, I can, and you're right. It's really interesting, that distance from it and the sort of creative distance from when it actually happens, which is probably four years or five years. And it's not something that I always thought about, but it's definitely a memory that I don't... It's not something I forget and obviously when you turn those sorts of experiences into words it changes and and so I suppose in a way my own experience is now very mixed up with my Mm -hmm. experience of writing the book
1: and then what happened in the immediate aftermath so let's talk about basically how you how your life was saved I
2: guess yeah so um the soldiers that I was with I wasn't actually a platoon commander I was doing a slightly different job but anyway the company group that I was with they run up and they take the tourniquet kale okay, more more they, they do i mean i you know I, I shut my eyes pretty tight and and just gritted my teeth so in terms of what sort of medical things they did i'm you know i'm not i'm i don't know all mm-hmm. i know is i'm in a hell of a lot of pain and they basically got me onto a vehicle that took me to a helicopter and the helicopter get me, got me back to a place called bastion which is the sort of front line base and where all the amazing medical Kit and equipment and doctors were, and they, you know, that's where you know I, that, at that moment I was out, and they were, you know, they were sedating me and, and doing surgery and, and, and trying to keep me better.
1: And yeah, we should emphasise that that there is there, you know, that you were able to have surgery there, yeah. pretty much. You're obviously not in the field, but back at
2: base. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how true this is, but if I, if 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 I sustained or if Tom sustained the same injuries walking down the road in London, he'd probably less likely to survive. You know, <laughs> he wouldn't get to the sort of medical attention as quickly and it wouldn't all be in one place. I mean, I think at the time, Bastion was the best trauma centre in the world, basically. And the expertise that's come out of there has you know, has sort of benefited everyone, I think, has gone across the NHS.
1: And then you come back to the UK. What happens then? So what's the next part of that process?
2: So a bit of time in, uh, in the intensive care unit and that sort of thing. And then they had to do a lot of... So these blast injuries, a lot of dirt and stuff gets blown yeah. into... The casualties, and they have to do a lot of what they call debriding, which is sort of taking away the, the dying tissue and, and all the um, all the sort of muck that gets blown inside you. So it's a bit unpleasant, but that takes a bit of time, and it's really to make sure that the wounds are clean enough in order to heal. And there's no so they're, what they're most worried about is the risk of infections, really. And the book to touches on that. One of the objects is actually a fungus a sort of infection and it narrates a part of, a short part of the story about you know sort of how it's growing inside tom and then and then you know once that's done once you've done that initial surgery and, and you're surgically as good as you're going to be then you're off to the rehab center uh, the military rehab center which is in headley court which is down in leatherhead that's where you start to learn to walk again and that's mm-hmm. where you're you know, you're back on your feet so to speak and you're you're getting better
1: Tell me a little bit about that process, because like now you've got these prosthetics, which are like quite high tech. But Tom in the book goes through obviously various stages of that in the process of learning to walk again.
2: Yeah, I mean it's just I mean it's different for every soldier because everyone's ampute- any amputee their, their injuries are very different like mm-hmm. those, it's not one size fits all. But for Tom, you know he gets you get and for me it's, you get such sort of quite rudimentary legs to begin with as you as you learn. The sort of balance and the supporting muscles because you have to sort of re often there's a lot of wastage of muscle and certain muscle will be blown off and you have to retrain the brain but also the body in order to deal with it. And also then there's the pressure of the prosthetics on these wounds so there's often a lot of sort of friction and bleeding and things and it's quite uncomfortable to start with and then over time you, you it's like sort of I suppose getting better and better cars you know you yeah. start with your I shouldn't say Skoda because they're quite good now but you know you start with your banger and and as you get better and and your needs, you know, when they, they, so I've, you know, I've got a leg now that's a, a microprocessor leg, which thousands of pounds and things, and, and but can do lots of things. From it's waterproof, so I can do water sports, and and so you sort of progress up until you're, you're using the best of the kit you can.
1: There's a conversation that Tom has with his mum in the book where he he says something along the lines of, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way if I could
2: go back. Is that your own experience? Yeah, I mean, I think Tom gets there probably a bit quicker than I did, but I I never felt angry about it, and it was pretty quickly that I felt that... Obviously, you know, it's it's a stupid thing to say, really, but for me, it had become part of who I was very quickly. And it sounds odd, but there was some enjoyment to getting of relearning this stuff and being in this new world i mean that's not enough to not want it to have happened but there was sort of a change in your life and suddenly you know it's who i was and and i didn't want to you know i wouldn't go back i mean that is one moment there are days when it's really sure turd and not anymore but at the time when i may not have said that but i suppose in the book i was just sort of finding a way of trying to communicate that
1: let's focus a bit more back on the book again and let's talk about just why you decided to write it i guess
2: well, I mean, I, I was really enjoying writing, really. I never wanted to write just about me. I just, and and I, without finding a creative way of doing it and saying something different and just telling a good story, I don't think I ever would have done it. So it was just, you know, I was enjoying writing, really. It was something to do.
1: And you were writing before?
2: Yeah, yeah. Short, I mean, mainly short stories, just getting getting used to it. Um, it was only after I was injured that I started writing, really.
1: But why do it as a novel?
2: Well, I mean, as, we, as I said at the beginning, it was really important to sort of sidestep the, the politics, and um, I wasn't interested in any of any of that sort of memoir stuff. It felt sort of, it just sort of jarred with me every time I tried to write it. And, I, you know, having been someone who's done visual art, drawing, and painting, you know, I, I wanted to try and continue to make art if, without being too, I, I don't know, I, you know, I really, lo- I really felt about it like that, and I had no interest in writing non fiction.
1: But then, of course, it's it's there are huge elements of it that are autobiographical, of course. So I suppose it's like you're sort of having your cake and eating it, doing it as a novel,
2: I guess. Yeah, I mean, you could look at it like that. But I suppose, um, for me, I felt I could say more as a novel. And I could also... I you know although you say it's autobiographical and it is I always thought about it more as like a self-portrait there's as much of me in the those characters Latif and Farhan as there is in Tom Barnes sure. So and I was although you know I wouldn't go go too far on this I was sort of working out my feelings about it you know and trying to solve problems about how I could talk about this you know hence using the objects and things and I just thought I could say a lot more and a lot more eloquently by doing it as art rather than something else and that's why i did it like this you know and and i think i think there's a there's a power in letting the reader decide some of those things rather than just sort of spoon feeding it to them in sort of factual things
1: you said you didn't, you didn't want to do it as a memoir. I mean, you mentioned in the first part, again, just, just being a bit sort of squeamish about confronting your own experience, but you've obviously had to dredge that up to pull it into this book. Now it's done, how do you feel about that? I mean, how, how did the process
2: of writing... Yeah, I suppose not squeamish in the terms of I was squeamish with the content of sort of...
1: Well, just that so you didn't want to, you know... I didn't you, want to you put didn't want to...
2: Myself first, if that makes sense. <laughs> and anyone who's written a book, it's a very odd feeling at the moment where you press print for the last time or for the first time after you've written it and it's suddenly there as a thing of its own or the first time you give it to somebody else to read it feels that like, you know we're talking about it now but it feels like a long time ago that I wrote it and I mm-hmm. you know am sort of trying to work on other things now so there's that distance already from the time of writing and that i that's quite that's quite a strange thing and mm-hmm. as soon as people start to read it they you know I had my time with it when it was just mine and now everyone has their own you know has their own take on it. Who do
1: you want to read it? I guess. That's a weird question. Obviously you want everybody to read it. But I mean yeah. more specifically, who 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 do you hope reads it?
2: When I wrote it, when I started to write it, I just wanted to write a the type of book that I would I would want to read myself mm-hmm. that I had, I had never read before, sorry. So that was the sort of what I was looking at. But I suppose I didn't want to tell there's quite a few sort of not all, but there's quite a few books out there that they overglorify some aspects of conflict and they make it's sort of a sort of manly thing that you know you every man is less for not having been a soldier or whatever that expression is I can't remember but I, I wanted to get away from all that because I what, that so black and white view of conflict is not my experience and I and I think that you know more could be said so so, anyone really I think I, I, you know I, although this sounds odd, when I was writing it i didn't think I was writing a war mm-hmm. fiction. You know the way I constructed it, I wanted it to be much more than that. well, what I was trying to
1: get at, really, I guess, is what would your comrades think of it if they read it
2: a few few have read it and have, have been nice about it i mean that's another reason that i didn't write non fiction I was really conscious of. As soon as you put your stamp down on what an experience was like, where there's a lot of people involved, there's always going to be people who look at it and say, "Well, that's not, that wasn't my experience as well." So that was another reason that I turned to fiction. But I, it doesn't matter to me who reads it, really. I, you know, I think it can hopefully anyone can read it and and maybe not enjoy it, but certainly get something out of it.
1: I mean, you you mentioned that you didn't think you were writing a war novel. And it's definitely an you know an unusual take at a war novel, but were there other writers that you you were influenced by in writing it?
2: I think it really helped that I was really badly read when I started writing this book. I had I I didn't really realise that to tell the story from inanimate objects was an unusual thing to do mm-hmm. or something that was slightly out of fashion, and I'd never read anything like that before. I mean, there's obviously stuff out there, but I'd never read a long piece of fiction. So it was only when I started to give it to people to read, they say, oh, have you read this? Have you read that? It turns out the Victorians love writing from the point of view of inanimate objects. And, there's you know, there's 400... A.D. Is a, is a Anglo-Saxon poem which is from the point of view of the cross that Christ was crucified on. So, you know, it's been done before. But I'm not sure, it's certainly not recently and, and probably not in the sort of lots of different objects telling one story i'm not sure that's been quite done before so in terms of influences my main influences were, were probably people like hemingway mm-hmm. when i first started writing it and um some of ian m banks's the sci-fi stuff you know if i really i mean i don't know if the culture novels but um there's some really interesting parts of that his use his sort of imagination i i think had there was some influence of that in the book
1: and we talked about this idea that it's been written in a way that's sort of fragmented, that so you could you could read it sort of in, in any order and, and, you know, and still get the same sort of effect from it. I want to talk a little bit about the, the writing process. I so Talk about the order that it was written in.
2: It, do you know what it is? Basically, the order is exactly the same. I may have switched around one chapter. Again, it felt quite instinctive, but I spent a lot of time thinking. I mean, I really had to think about how to make it work because the the chapters often start years before the last chapter, or before them or after them. But the, the sort of threads of the narrative had I, I had to be very careful about how they all came together in a way that was believable and hopefully exciting. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that.
1: So how did you work that out? Lying in the bath in the middle of the night. I mean, you did have post-it notes. Yeah. Thing. No, I've got a
2: book which has <laughs> got timelines and mind maps and lots of diagrams that gave me something to hold on to but I, I sort of try and see the whole story in my head and hold it there and make it work in my head as much as possible
1: just to finish off last question what's next
2: so i'm so i'm trying to write something else but every time i tell someone it i slightly feel that it kills it a bit <laughs> yeah you um, don't have to go into too much detail <laughs> to <talk> about... <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm trying to write um i'm very interested in in how into the security in our own country. So I'm writing another novel, a little bit about that. And, but there are no soldiers and there's no narrated, no narration from inanimate objects. I've
1: been talking to Harry Parker. We've been talking about his debut novel, Anatomy of a Soldier. It's out now from Faber. So Harry, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thanks very much.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resoners FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Andrew Hankinson is a journalist who was born, raised and lives in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He started his career as a staff writer at Arena magazine and is now a freelance feature writer who has contributed to The Observer magazine, The Guardian, Wired, GQ, Esquire, The Independent, The FT Weekend magazine and The New Statesman, amongst others. He's appeared on Newsnight, Daily Politics, BBC Radio 3, 4 and Radio 5 Live and we're going to be talking about Andrew's first book, which is You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, You Are Rao Moat. Andrew, welcome to Little Atoms. Uh,
3: nice to be here, Neil. Recap for us who Raul Moat was. Yeah, well, back in 2010, he was a a man in his 30s from Newcastle. He went to prison for... He was sentenced to four months for hitting a child, for assault on a child. And when he came out of prison, he shot his ex-girlfriend, shot her new boyfriend disappeared into the woods of Northumberland, a place called Rothbury. The next night he shot a police officer called PC David Rathband and then he hid in the woods for the rest of the week and he was finally surrounded by armed police and shot himself.
1: And what is it about his story that made you want to write this book?
3: I wanted to write a particular kind of book and I was waiting for A story to come along that I thought would support that kind of book and this is a story that happened to come along that I could also get access to so um, it could have been many stories really but then um, you you know he, he really captured the attention while he was doing what he was doing people were interested in it it was a big tabloid story and I thought as always as news moves on there's something for feature writers like me to sort of have a scrabble around and see what else was in that story that people might have missed.
1: Well, I understand that it also started off as being, it was going to have like a wider focus and was going to be about Raoul but in the context of the North And then obviously the focus narrowed. So tell me what you sort of first of all envisioned it would be. And then let's talk about why it ended up narrowing down.
3: Well, a lot of the books I like are about a place as well as about a story. I'm from the North I was living in London at the time, and I just, there was a couple of pieces that were written about the North at this point and what people were up to in the North. Derek Bird had just been on his shooting spree as well. And I thought, oh, is this something to do with the North, the North Northern men? And then when I started to do the research and started to look into it, I thought, actually, this has got nothing to do with the Northeast whatsoever. This is just about a person who could have been anywhere.
1: And it's it's written in the second person. So let's talk about the decision to do that. Yeah,
3: um, not a lot of people like second person, so I'm not sure if it was a wise decision. But I really love the new journalism of, of uh, the 60s and 70s, a lot of American writing um, s- some great British writers have done it as well. I liked Bright Light's Big City. I thought that was a fantastic book as fiction, but in second person. And I thought, I wonder if I could apply this to a non-fiction story. So I just decided to go for it. And I'd written a couple of very short pieces for magazines before in second person. And I just think it's a really intimate, if you can get it right, I think it's a really intimate way of writing, much more intimate than first person or third person. And if I've got all this material, which is things that Ramo has recorded or things that Ramo has written, I thought, what's the best way to bring the reader as close as possible to that? When Ralmo is someone who people don't feel very close to and don't sympathise or empathise with, how can I make them as close as possible to him? And I thought a second person was a good way of doing that.
1: And of course, this means that we're only seeing events from Ralmo's perspective. So there are events that happen in this case that if people do remember it, will remember, you know, Gaza turning up with a fishing rod and some KFC or something, and that's not in the book because Ralmo would not have been aware of it. So that focus on Rama himself and his own thoughts and his own writing its you know, as we know what he goes on to do, it's, it's quite a claustrophobic place to be. We feel what he's thinking, we feel his self-loathing, but it's also impossible in the second person mode not to sympathise with him, is not
3: it? Yeah, that's what people seem to say. And I mean, it's, it's hard because I, I don't want to create a sympathy that shouldn't be there. But yeah, I think you're so inside of his head. With second person, I think it's hard not to start to see things from his point of view at certain points in the story, which has annoyed some people, I think.
1: And it also means that there are other perspectives that we don't get to hear inevitably. And of course, that means we don't get to hear his victims or the family of his victims.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of stuff that's not in there because of the way I've written it. It's it, You know, I set myself the challenge of doing it in second person in this constrained way of keeping it all within things that Ralmo saw or or did and knew about. Once I'd gone in that direction, I thought it was important to stick with that and kind of not bottle out of it at any point. That whole Gaza thing, that's the thing that people really remember about this. And that's the thing that everyone asked me about. And you know, throughout the whole process of saying, Oh, I'm writing a book about Ralmo," everyone said, Oh, Gaza, yeah, is that in there? And I've had to say, No, Gaza's not in there. But I'm quite proud of the fact that he's not in there because I, I think that was a bit of a comical sideline. And that's kind of Gaza's, you know, Gaza's got this tragic story of his own. It appears as an outsider. And that's his story. That was nothing to do with Ralmo, So I didn't want that to be in there. And I'm happy with that. The fact that his victims You know, I I did try and contact relatives or I tried to contact PC David Rathband while he was still alive and people didn't want to talk to me and I completely understood that and I I wasn't going to go and start pushing that. I would have liked to have spoken to them, but certainly I I don't think it would have hugely changed the uh, way I was writing the book, but there might have been more material about them in there. But I think that the way that I end the book is supposed to be a kind of a full stop on, yes, there is this big, long self-justification, but at the end of the day, he killed someone and shot three people, you know.
1: Well, you talk about the long self-justification. So he left numerous tape recordings, various suicide notes, sort of lengthy confession, handwritten confession, um, all of which you've used at some point in this book. So let's talk about how much of the book is...
3: This is something that people ask about and it's the way I've written it, it's frustrating for me because I, you know, some people kind of think, oh, you must have just made these bits up. But so the bits which are his thoughts sort of thing. Well, that's all taken from those documents. And I've just, you know, edited what he said, reordered it and and, um, sort of strung it back together. So things that, like, you know, he's telling a joke. Well, that's a joke that he had on a recording where he's got this big, long rant about Jeremy Kyle or lie detectors and stuff. That's taken from things that he wrote before he died or he recorded before he died. So the stuff that's in his head, that's his thoughts, that's all taken from material that he left behind. Um, and then there's some bits which are from interviews which have sort of threaded in as well. And then, you know, the bits like, oh, you drive this way and you, you get out of the car at this point. Well, that's taken from further evidence, such as notes I took at the trial of his accomplices or his inquest and things like that.
1: And so what were some of the challenges of actually translating that work into a narrative?
3: It's... I had an absolutely enormous amount of documents, an enormous amount of audio, and I knew how I wanted to do it, which was to pluck out the interesting bits, the bits that I found interesting, and then splice them back together in a way that would be an interesting story for a reader. So I knew how how, that I wanted to do that. The challenge was then reading through all these documents and taking bits out and putting them into his head at a place which I thought was a reasonable place to put it. So that was a challenge. And then also listening to hours and hours and hours of audio, because he recorded audio in the couple of years before he died. So listening to all that audio as well was very time-consuming, making notes on it. And then going back to all these notes that I'd made and the documents that I had and trying to figure out which bits could go with which bits and where they should fit into the book and you know where he might be thinking that and where he might not be thinking that and uh, splicing the bits together, which seemed like a reasonable splice rather than something that I certainly wouldn't be thinking. It was a challenge, yeah, certainly.
1: And not just time consuming, but also what was that experience of like emerging yourself in his psyche for all of that time like for you?
3: I, I think I certainly got to know him very well. And people who, who were friends with him or related to him, they might disagree and think that I didn't get close. But I think I did. And um, it was really unpleasant listening to tapes of him, knowing what he went on to do. It's not nice. Um, you also kind of listen to tapes. It, it doesn't, you know, there's something a bit unsettling about it. But the impact is just writing about a murderer you know and, and knowing that there are victims out there and knowing that there are people out there who know him and and that had a much greater impact on me than having to listen to him or read the documents or anything it was just the fact that you're writing a book about this subject which is you know in my local area and uh, um, affected a lot of people in the local area
1: This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Andrew Hankinson and we're talking about his book You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, You Are Rao Moat. And Andrew, when we started, I asked you to remind us who Rao Moat was and I'm going to ask you again who was Rao Moat. Now we've talked about the time you spent writing the book and, and sort of immersing yourself in him. Let's talk about why he did what he did.
3: He was a bodybuilder, he fixed cars... He started a tree surgery business. He kind of had employment and he was a bouncer as well. But he's also admitted to criminality. He said he was, you know, he got away with the criminal acts that he actually committed. And he he says that the police arrested him for things that he had never done. He was found guilty of one crime, um, which was assault on a child. And he was also someone with these... It seems like very poor mental health. He went to see a psychiatrist. He went to see a psychologist. He was booked in to meet a psychologist for psychotherapy. He never attended those appointments. He was... He went to see a counselor regularly before he went to prison. And while he was in prison, he was prescribed an antidepressant. He knew that he had mental health problems. He's talked about his feelings of suicide and his attempts of at suicide before. So he was a very unstable person, I think, who was also prone to rage. He used to take steroids, and he recorded how this steroids made him feel even more rageful. So he was a kind of, I guess, it's a bit a cliche, but he was a you know, is a ticking bomb, really. I think.
1: Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about the title, You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life. People might think that sounds ironic, but first of all, that was something he said. But also, it's sort of true in that, you know, he did have opportunities, he did have chances. He described, you know, he describes himself as, as, as quite a clever bloke, and he had this paranoia about the police, but it does seem that Raul Mote's worst enemy was himself. You talk about he was trying to seek help, but at the same time would never turn up for appointments.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's why I included that stuff in there, because it's not just... To go and see um, mental health professionals, but also, you know, going to see people about his allergies and going to see people to fix his hand, which he broke and things like that. Yeah, he just wouldn't turn up for appointments. And the whole, yeah, that whole point of that title is to say, look, this was a grown man who made decisions and he carried on making decisions which made his life worse. His interactions with the state he handled terribly. And I think, you know, a lot that was largely due to his paranoia. But he certainly had chances to fix his life, I think. And he always seemed to make the wrong decision. And uh, and right up until the end, you know, sh- shooting people, he chose to shoot people. And then go off to Rothbury with his two accomplices. He chose to include those two accomplices in, in what he was doing. And one of them went, was sentenced to 40 years and one of them was sentenced to 20 years. And uh, PC Rathband ended up killing himself. And, you know, this is all because of the decisions that um, Raulmo took. This case happened at the...
1: At the beginning, really, of social media world that we now live in, and I don't, I don't really want to overstate this because when these sort of things happened, it is normally just a you know bunch of idiots on the internet. But there was like Facebook groups and things, and people attempting to make him out as some sort of folk hero or something. On the back of this book, there's you know, a really nice long quote from Will Self, uh, where he talks about you know the idea of the book "Demystifying Evil," and again, I think I think describing him as evil is. The other sort of extreme of that I mean I think he seems like much more banal than that, and just a more slightly more extreme example of what we're now beginning to describe as toxic masculinity lots of the ways in which he expresses his sort of frustration are obviously through violence and that normally ends up as being domestic violence violence against women, doesn't it
3: yeah I think there are things to be sympathetic with Ramo for I've put those in there, but yeah. There is no justification for being violent towards people, for hitting women, for hitting children. There's no justification for shooting Christopher Brown, who didn't have anything to do with Raoul Moat, who was just dating Samantha Stobart, you know. Um, there's no justification for shooting Samantha Stobart, who had broken up with Raoul Moat. So... You know, there's sympathy there for him, for some of the things that have happened in his life. And for his he's clearly not very mentally well, but uh, but you have to take responsibility for your actions at the end of the day. And his actions were frequently wrong.
1: But what I'm just sort of trying to suggest is actually in sort of wireless society, this is a big problem in that, you know, I think despite what you've just said, I mean, he had a couple of accomplices and, you know, although there's a bit of a pathetic attempt to sort of pass them off as hostages... They clearly didn't think that the idea that you would come out of prison and go and shoot your ex girlfriend and her new boyfriend was that much of a big deal, did they? I think they almost seem to think and and you can this is obviously reflected in those Facebook groups as well. People seem to think that that was a almost a reasonable response
3: um yeah, I don't think they're very right thinking people are they those the people who set up the Facebook group. You know, and and people who liked it. I I don't know how many of those people are really serious about what they were they were trying to support. But it's, certainly there are some people out there who felt like he was a victim, that he was persecuted by the system. Some people have blamed, you know, S- Samantha Stobart for certain things. But I would say to those people, you should have been in the courtroom and seen PC David Rathband giving. Uh, evidence and you should have seen Christopher Brown's mum sat in the in the you know in, in the public gallery and I don't think you would feel that he was a victim at all he was a, he was a murderer and I don't think that they would feel like if they read this book I don't think that they would feel like he was a victim of the system at all I think they'd see that the system tried to help him in a lot of ways and I'm sure there were faults along the way like there are faults with all of us and all of our jobs but he certainly made his situation far worse
1: and I want to reiterate again this sort of history of domestic violence as well, because obviously Sam is, was the, the ex-girlfriend that he shot. But before Sam, there was a history of previous girlfriends that attested to his violence.
3: Yeah. I mean, he admitted to domestic violence so and he admitted to being violent to lots of people you know and ultimately he shot people so yeah he was a violent person i don't know where that violence came from but uh ruined other people's lives instead of just ruining his
1: yeah now, just to finish off then i sort of wanted to talk about you know sort of glibly how can we prevent more realmos and stuff but i mean do you think again that he was you know he's not an anomaly he's not like a one-off guy i mean this sort of violence is just simmering under the surface i think
3: yeah i, I mean do you think that there's lots of people around like rama
1: yeah i do yeah well, not even necessarily that there's lots of people... I, I'm not so worried that there's lots of people like Raomo that, that have, you know, access to guns and would go out and go this far. But I do think, as I've just said, there's probably a lot of people who sort of think what he did wasn't that bad.
3: Wasn't so bad, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. There's probably quite a lot of people around like that who think, you know... I mean, it, it's... You know, that whole thing of coming out of prison and, and shooting his ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend, that wasn't such a it didn't seem like such an unusual crime was it You know, it was um a guy who's jealous and uh, who suffers from rage and he you know he was taking revenge wasn't he for being, feeling slighted yeah I mean, I
1: mean there are women being murdered by their ex-partners every week
3: yeah exactly yeah so so no he's, he's probably not unusual in that in that respect and it and it's scary that these people are walking around but certainly after looking back through his mental health history and looking at his medical records and things things like that i started to think oh yeah there might be people wandering around who are sort of feeling this way and feeling murderous rage and you're and you're right they just don't have access to guns and things you know haven't given up so completely on life that they're willing to follow through with these kind of actions there probably are lots of people who would sympathize with Ralmo, and and uh, they're not the kind of people you really want to sit next to on the bus are they
1: how has the how have you found the book being received so far
3: you know Some people have messaged me or emailed me nice things and things, and um, it's been reviewed quite widely. And some of the reviews have been really good, and and, uh, a few of them have been not great. And I I kind of had, there's, there's lots of frustrations with writing this book. One of them was that the constrained way in which I wrote it, I knew I couldn't write any nice lines. I had to stick with the way, you know, I had to stick with material plucked from what he'd left behind and then stick with his vocabulary and his phrasing and stuff. So I knew it was never going to be a nice book. Um, I couldn't put lovely similes in there and stuff. The other frustration, because I didn't want to just footnote it to death, I knew that some people, well, you know, lots of people will read it and not be quite sure what they're reading. And so that's been picked up in a lot of the reviews and and I I kind of understand that. And that was a decision that I made early on and I just have to accept really. And hopefully as time goes by, people will uh, start to realise what they are reading and hopefully see the journalism that is in it because there's five years of journalism in it, you know.
1: And what's next?
3: Uh, I just want to get away from uh murders so um i'm hoping to write about new york comedy about um a club which is kind of famous now unfortunately for me um but the, the comedy seller in new york i just kind of want to look back at uh, the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s uh stand-up circuit in new york
1: so i've been talking to andrew hankinson and we've been discussing his book you could do something amazing with your life you are realmote which is out now from scribe so andrew thank you so much for sharing it with us
3: that's great thanks neil
0: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denning and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews,
2: new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com.
0: Thanks for listening.